Father, we love you because you first loved us. God, thank you for coming to us when we could not come to you. Jesus, thank you for willingly coming to this earth to reveal the Father to us. Thank you for coming not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for everyone. Holy Spirit, thank you for your abiding presence in our lives. Forgive us for the times where we have moved you aside, where we have ignored your voice, where we've maybe grieved you or quenched you by our lives or in our own hearts. And Holy Spirit, we ask today that you just renew a clean, a pure conscience within us, a conscience that only comes from you, that we would know what is right, that we would know what is just, that we would know what is fair, we would know what is good. Holy Spirit, empower us as carriers of the kingdom. God, to release your kingdom everywhere we go. God, to be the light in the midst of darkness. And so Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what it is that you're saying to your church right now. Give us eyes to see where you are at work in our world right now. And Holy Spirit, align our hearts and our thoughts with yours in every way. God, I ask again for an increase of dreams and visions. I ask for an increase of, of the gifts of the Spirit to, to operate in our lives. And above all, that you would make us people of the book, that we would know and be rooted and grounded, God, in the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. And so, Holy Spirit, guide our thoughts over these next few moments. Holy Spirit, correct us, train us, teach us. We invite you to rebuke us today. Have your way in every single one of our lives. Today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated uh, if you're not yet. And uh, if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open it up to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. If you joined us late for service, if you came in late or you turned on late, uh, happy Father's Day to all of our fathers that are, are with us today, and we just want to honor you, celebrate you today, and uh, remind you that there is some beef jerky for you in the lobby, and for those of you that are hungry right now, um, I'm sorry to draw your attention to it again. But Second uh, Thessalonians, we are in a series that we have been in um, actually since uh, the COVID virus started. So week one was our first week online, all those many weeks ago. And so if you ever wonder, how long have we been doing this? Well, there you go. Uh, we're in week 15, and uh, we're, I'm not going to be recapping every week, as I mentioned to you last week. If I recap every single week at this point, um, I'm going to preach for like two hours. So if I say things that you don't understand or think I don't have the right to say, I've probably building on something we've said in the past. So you've got two options. You can go back and listen to everything I've already said, or you can call me and we can chat about it and uh, we can try to, to work through those differences together. But we have been using the book, The Untold Story by Frank Viola. And uh, Frank takes us through the history of the, the, the early church, helps us put into context what, where these letters that are written fall and where they fit in. And so this last week, we read pages 103 through 106. It was a short read in the book. Um, but then Acts chapter 18, 1 through 22, deals with Paul in Corinth, where we believe, at least I believe, scholars disagree, where he wrote the letters of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. These letters really come um, pretty close together, at least as I date them. Scholars disagree, but um, scholars are always going to disagree. But this coming week, we're going to be reading pages 11 or 111 through 120 and Acts chapter 18, verse 23 through 19, verse 21. Uh, those are on Slack. If you need them, if you need a copy of the reading plan, uh, I can email that to you. And it also says 1 Corinthians. And so I kind of give us two weeks to read 1 Corinthians, um, a little bit longer book. And I want to make sure that we um, process all that's in there. And so 
next week I'm going to actually be preaching from Acts, and then the following week we'll, we'll go to 1 Corinthians. And so a lot of resources on Slack, and uh, those are there. And uh, we, this whole series really is about being people of the, the text, being people of the word, people of the book. And I hear that in a lot of different denominations, churches, groups right now, that this is a year that they're calling their people to get back to the Word, to get in the Word. In the Assemblies of God, the year 2020, our theme was 2020 vision, to have vision by getting back into the Word of God. And there's resources coming out from the Assemblies of God right now to help people get into the Bible and to really read it and study it and meditate on it. And so... Um, it's either a, a, a huge coincidence or the Holy Spirit is saying something to the church. Um, don't assume we know the book. Get back into the book and study it. And that's what we've been talking about. Jesus tells a parable, if you remember, called we call it the parable of the sower. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? The parable of the sower, the guy that threw seed out. Um, it's actually not the parable of the sower, although we use it for that. It's actually the parable of the soils. Because Jesus is saying, listen, take heed to how you listen. Okay? Check your heart. Because just because you've accepted Christ as your Savior doesn't mean you don't have a hard heart where the word can't penetrate. We've got to make sure that we're doing things. And Jesus gives us hints in the text what Old Testament passages to go to. If we have a hard heart, what should we do? Well, the prophets, breaking up the fallow ground of our heart, the way you do it is living a generous life starting to serve people and give to people. That's how you soften your heart, if you will, according to the prophets. And so whether we have a hard heart or a thorny heart, you know, that choked out by the cares and anxieties of life, or a rocky heart where, you know, per persecution's causing us to fall away from the word, uh, make sure we're cultivating a heart that hears the word. And that's the challenge that Jesus is giving to the people. And remember when the disciples took him aside and said, why do you speak in parables? I want you to understand that rabbis always spoke in parables. They're not asking, you know, why do you speak in parables per se, but why do you speak to everyone in parables? Because you're supposed to speak to your disciples in parables, but not everyone. Not everyone's trained to understand the parables. And Jesus basically says, I speak in parables so they don't understand. And we're like, huh? Huh? But he's not saying he doesn't want them to understand. He's saying, I want them to have to dig to understand. I want them to have to come to me and really pull out the truth. You can get a lot from the surface teachings of Jesus. You can get a lot from the surface readings of the Bible. But if you dig, you are going to understand more of who he is, what his character's like. And that's what he wants from us. We in the Western world, we want to come to a worship service. Pastor, you know, in 15 minutes, just give me, give me something. Tell me how to live. Tell me how to think. I don't want to tell you what to think. I want to tell you how to think. I don't want to tell you who the false teachers are in our world. I want to teach you the truth so you recognize false teaching. Because in the parable of the weed and the weeds, Jesus cautions us, uh, be careful when you point out a weed because you might not be the one to know. Sure it's quiet in here today. Now, I'm not saying we can't argue, debate, wrestle with issues, but we tend to want to label people as weeds. And Jesus says the angels are going to do that at the end. Not you. That's above our pay grade, if you will. Because every time we think we've got this figured out, uh, we might be wrong. And so this series is about making sure we know the story God has been telling all along. And we're going to look at some of that today. Last week when we looked at 1 Thessalonians, I talked about don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. And remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, don't strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Same kind of concept. And this happens a lot in the area of end times theology, where we strain out gnats and swallow camels. And uh, um, I just noticed, like, everyone's over here today, and there's, like, no one over there. So I don't have to look that way. I just have to look this way. So it's just uh, weird. And so when we, when we get into end times stuff, 
Some of you like, are like, ooh, 2 Thessalonians, he's going to talk about the Antichrist today. <laughs> I'm going to just tell you up front, I'm going to disappoint you like crazy. Uh, because we're not going to try to pick who the Antichrist is, because I don't think that's what Paul's saying in 2 Thessalonians. Um, but what we are going to talk about is what I've titled the sermon, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And uh, I, I know that some of you right now are, are thinking of 1987, and uh, you're having flashbacks to, you know, REM, and you're like, it's the, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a great time to love. And some of you are just having flashbacks to Chicken Little because you weren't alive in 1987, but you remember Chicken Little. But for as long as we can remember in recorded history, people have thought it was the end of the world. Okay? I promise you it's not the end of the world. Guarantee. Guarantee it's not the end of the world. Because Jesus is going to reign on this earth for a thousand years, we believe. Okay? So, not the end of the world. Might be the end of the world as we know it. And that could be good, or that could be bad. And we're going to look at what Paul tells us here in 2 Thessalonians, and then some of the words of Jesus to try to put all that into context. But we tend to look back on periods of history in ro with rose-colored glasses, you know, we're like, oh, there, times were better when I was a kid. Times were better back then. Um, I do this with my, my children. I don't know if you as parents can relate to this, but it's Father's Day. You know, I have a 21-year-old son, and my 21-year-old son sometimes makes decisions that I'm like, oh, what are you doing? And I tend to think, you know, why couldn't you be more like me when I was 21? Because I didn't make stupid decisions like that. But all it takes is one conversation with my mother to realize, yes, I did. I just forgot, okay? And that's what we tend to do. If you remember back in September, we, we watched a video by Matt Chandler on Wednesday nights called The Foundations of Fire, and maybe I'll link it in Slack. And Matt talked about the danger that we have in our American culture. We tend to think that America started as this wonderful, godly Christian nation, okay, built on principles from the scripture, but not built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay, built on the moral foundations of scripture. There's a huge difference between morality and the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So I'm not dis discounting anything that's happened, but Matt talked to us about this idea that we believe that we've been on this steady decline and that things have just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And if you take a step back from history, you realize that's not true. Realize that there have actually been ebbs and flows, of history. It's not been a steady decline. There have been times of great revival throughout the history of our nation, and then there's been times of great immorality, and there's these ebbs and flows, and as people of God, we, we need to learn to navigate them and not run around like Chicken Little talking about how the sky is falling and it's the end of the world. Now, it may be the end of the world as we know it, but I promise you there was a time when children were taught to hide under their desks in school because we thought we were going to be bombed. And people said, it's the end of the world, okay? There have been times throughout history where there's been extreme wickedness. And people have said, oh, this is for sure the end of the world. So we're going to look at what Paul tells the, the Corinthians, and we want to make sure we put life in context. Whether it's my history, our church's history, American history, or even the church history. I, we've talked a little bit about the doctrines or the beliefs of some of our founding fathers in the church. Um, a lot of anti-Semitism. If you've ever, just Google Martin Luther and anti-Semitism, and you'll be shocked at some of the things Martin Luther said about the Jews. Maybe you'll be shocked to find that the Christians, in the name of Jesus, with a cross on their shields, went into Palestine to reclaim the Holy Land from the Jews and the, the Muslims and slaughtered them because we wanted to take back the, the Holy Land for the church. There's some dark periods of church history. And that's important for us to recognize and remember because God works through people with warts. I'm not trying to say Martin Luther was this terrible guy. Martin Luther gave us great doctrine, but he had warts. And that's important for us to remember because we kind of overlook the warts of the people of the past and some of their false doctrines. There's a book called Regrace 
by Frank Viola, Regrace. And what he does is he goes through some of the, the, the fathers of our faith that we love and we cling to their theology. And he shows us the theology that they had that was wrong. And uh, you'll love some of the interactions that Moody had with some other people about whether smoking cigars were actually, uh, God, whether, whether God supported it or didn't support it. Yeah, that was actually an argument in the church, and people preached on it. I don't say that because I want you to think these people are bad, but here's what we don't do. We don't give people in the present the same grace that we give people in the past. And we have to learn to do that. We have to keep everything in context so that we understand. So Paul writes 2 Thessalonians. Now, some scholars are going to say Paul didn't even write it. I think Paul wrote it. I could be wrong. Uh, but some people will argue. Uh, I don't remember if Frank Viola goes into it a lot in the book. But they'll say that Paul's First and Second Thessalonians are way too similar to be Paul. Like literally a carbon copy. If you look at the, the Bible project videos that I, I put on Slack, they'll show you that they're basically a carbon copy. Right down to the, you know, Paul writes on a topic and then he, he says a prayer. Then he writes on a topic, then he says a prayer. Then he writes on a topic. I mean, carbon copy. Now, does that mean that Paul didn't write it? Well, no. I mean, Paul's writing style is just being formed. They'll point to things like, well, you know, the Greek is really hard to understand in 2 Thessalonians. It really doesn't make sense. Well, Peter himself said some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. So that's not necessarily a sign that Paul didn't write it. The one big thing is that Paul seems to overemphasize it's really me writing this letter. Look, I'm writing with my own hand like I do in all my letters. And we know that he doesn't do that in all his letters. But if we understand the context that somehow a false letter from Paul has been sent to the Thessalonians. And some people are trying to, to give weight to what they believe and they're saying, but we have a letter from Paul, we just can't find it. I mean, I know the Bible says this somewhere because I was taught it in Sunday school, I just can't find it. That's what we do when we're arguing today. I know it's there, and Paul is like, no, 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 don't, don't listen, it's really me writing this letter. So, you know, could it be Paul, could it not be Paul, I don't know, but there's not really any scholars that say that this doesn't belong in the Bible, okay? So whether Paul wrote it or not wrote it, there's something in it that our church fathers think is valuable for us, and they pretty much all agree on that. So whether you think Paul wrote it or not, I'm going to say Paul wrote it. If you disagree, I love you. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians starts with Paul again, like he just did in, in the first letter, okay? His first letter confused them. Someone else writes a letter in his name, starts stirring up trouble, and so they're confused, so he's writing them a second letter really close together to try to say, hey, guys, come on, pay attention to what I said the first time. Pay attention to what I was Because remember we talked about last week he didn't get to stay there very long, so he feels like he didn't get to share with them everything they maybe needed. So he's like this. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. You know, that's a powerful thing right there. If we start giving thanks for one another more, maybe we'll be less apt to be angry with one another as much. But just a, a thought. So we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. Remember that from 1 Thessalonians? And your love that all of you have for one another is increasing. Same thing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance in faith. Again, carbon copy almost of the first letter. All of this, your faith in the persecutions and trials you're enduring, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. If you're troubled, God has promised to bring you relief. This is an encouragement to them, to us as well. This will happen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh yeah, he's coming in blazing fire and powerful angels because he wants to kill all of his enemies. Ah, that's not what he means here. Okay? I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but what Paul is, is about to do is he, because they're confused. They think that the day of the Lord's already happened. And it's not like the rapture happened and I missed it. Did you ever fear that growing up as a child? You know, you were, you, I, I don't know where my parents are and I think I missed the rapture. 
I mean, that happened to me a lot as a child. I was always afraid I was going to miss the rapture because I wasn't ready. I wasn't living all the way right that I needed to live, which I think is an extreme error theology that's caused fear in the hearts of many people. But that's not what he's saying. They're thinking the day of the Lord has already happened and we're still being persecuted. This isn't as good as we thought it was going to be. They're becoming disillusioned and disheartened. And Paul's like, no, when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be with blazing fire and powerful angels. You're not going to miss it. Okay. So when God sets up his kingdom on the earth, it, you're not going to have to wonder. Okay, it's going to be hugely different. And then he goes right on and says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, which many of us assume is the rapture. We talked this about this last week. It may be. It may not be. Don't put all your eggs in that basket. Be ready for both. Brothers and sisters, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy I don't care if saint whoever gets up and gives you a prophecy. If it doesn't match what we already taught you, throw it out. Remember he told them, test the word. Test the prophecies. Don't throw out all prophecy, but test the prophecies that are given. Whether by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you. The day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now we're like, well, is it a pre-tribulation rapture? or post-tribulation rapture, and who is the Antichrist? And Pastor Tom, I think the Antichrist is President Obama. And I, No, 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 it's President Trump. No, 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 it's Benny Hinn. No, 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 it's this person, it's that person. Uh, how do we know? And the very thing that Paul is actually telling them not to do is the very thing that we're doing. We're living unsettled, trying to figure out all the details. And I posted videos. I posted a video by Pastor Jeff Mann, and he goes into this in great detail. So you can watch it on Slack, because I'm not going to go into great detail. Not that the details aren't important, but I want to look today at why should we know these details? What's the point of knowing the day of the Lord is coming? What's the point of knowing whether an actual antichrist is coming or whether Paul is just referring to a type of world leader that has existed from all of creation? I mean, if you go back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a type of antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar was a type of antichrist. I mean, there have been world leaders throughout history. And some scholars think that there's not an actual person that's an antichrist. And some think there is. And I don't care which one it is. We have to learn how to live. Paul is saying, hey, here's the details. Because I want you not to live unsettled lives. And I fear that in trying to figure out the details, most of the church is living unsettled. Don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. It's not the end of the world, maybe just the end of the world as we know it. So Paul goes on. He says that we always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, again, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He called you through, to this through our gospel. I love that. Our gospel, not another gospel. Why does he have to clarify? Because there's all kinds of Gospels. There's a Gospel of the Roman Empire, Gospel of the Greek Empire. No, our Gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings, whether by word of mouth or letter. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So not only is he saying to them, you know, here's the details, but he's saying don't live unsettled. Don't lose heart. Stay steadfast. You're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be steadfast. Be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord, and then he prays for them. Because this isn't just a try harder message. This is a you can't do this without the grace of God. So I'm praying God's grace all over you so that you do it. And then he goes into chapter 3 after that prayer, and he says, brothers and sisters, we want you to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching that you received from us. 
For even when we were, whoa, I did something to my iPad here. Sorry, okay. Even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down, earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Do not regard them... As an enemy, but warn them as a fellow believer. Now, I, ah, that word shame has such a different connotation in our culture than I think it does in this culture. When we say to people, oh, shame on you, uh, that, it's like we're just trying to, uh, that's not a, in, as I hear it in our culture today, that's not a word that's meant to encourage people or lead them to repentance. That's a word that's meant to push people down. Shame on you. Um, this word is not a shame, get, you should be like horribly offended at yourself. This is a call to repentance type of shame. That's why he says, don't regard them as an enemy, but as a, a fellow believer. Work with them. And I think this scripture that, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat, has been misapplied sometimes by the church. We've actually, I've actually heard it used to say that we shouldn't, we shouldn't have a welfare system in our country because if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, you are doing a great disservice to what Paul's teaching. Paul is saying, hey, believers, as a believer in the kingdom of God, you're saying, since Jesus is coming back, I don't need to work. I don't need to, I'm just going to live however I want to live because I don't need to take care of anything because Jesus is coming back. A good way to maybe uh, apply that for us today would be that as believers, we ought to take better care of our planet than we do. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 2, we were commissioned as human beings to be caretakers of God's planet? Yeah, we have. And that shouldn't change. I mean, we look at one verse where Peter says, all the world is going to be destroyed by fire, so don't, you know, it doesn't matter how we take care of it. We've still been commissioned to take care of it. And Jesus is going to set up a 1,000-year reign on the planet. He is coming back to see what we've done. And so if you want to misapply it in one direction, be careful you don't. Because it could actually apply to something that you're not even paying attention to. And that's why it's very important to know what Paul's saying and who he's saying it to and not get lost in the, the details. But what I think Paul is doing is trying to call them to kingdom living. It's not about, you know, being able to chart end times events and being able to put together a beautiful chart and show who the Antichrist is going to be and how long the tribulation is and what bull and this and this applies to this and that and nothing wrong with that as long as we keep living according to the kingdom while we do it. And in order to find the kingdom lifestyle, I want to go back to the teachings of Jesus because Jesus brought us the kingdom. He taught the gospel of the kingdom. And I want to look first at Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about what we refer to as end times events. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. I took a drink there on purpose. From the mouth of Jesus right there. I'm not saying that we have to just give in to being murdered, but be careful lest we fight so hard against it that we forget, and I'm going to talk to you also about why that's important, that we forget Jesus promised this would happen. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And I know when we think about false prophets, of course, we're not talking about us or our group or our denomination or our political affiliation or our anything. I mean, the false prophets are always on someone else's team. I mean, we have no worries because we are the right ones, all of us. We're always right because we all tend to view ourselves as 
Right. And what is happening here, what Jesus is saying is be careful. Because in the last days, people are going to start betraying each other, hate each other, turn away from the faith. And the increase in wickedness is going to cause our love to grow cold. Now, is he talking about the increase of wickedness is going to be so tempting, it's going to draw us away from our love, our passion towards God, and cause us to be immoral? Yes, he is. But he's also saying, because of the increase of wickedness, many are going to be tempted to hate their enemies. And that's also a deviation from the love that the kingdom calls us to. And if we hate our enemies, our love is growing cold. He also means that. Because Jesus said, uh, the first commandment, love God with everything. The second is like it, love your neighbor who is like yourself. Oh, but we tend to view our neighbor as worse than ourselves. But God says, no, I've given you mercy, and your neighbor doesn't need any more mercy than I gave you. So as you have received mercy, give mercy. Go and find out what this means. I want mercy, not your sacrifices. Mercy, 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 mercy. And then Jesus goes on in 20, verse 42. Therefore, keep watch. You don't know what day the Lord will come, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, when he does come, there will be no question that he has come. But his coming may take us by surprise. We didn't expect it to happen. Can I tell you something? We all expect it to happen right now. So... Just stay alert is what Paul is saying all the time because you just don't know how it's going to come. You just don't know how it's all going to work out, but be ready for it. But then look at what Jesus goes on to say. It will be good for that servant, the one who's watching, when his master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to him how, himself, my master is staying away a long time. And look what he does. Look at what this wicked service, servant does. He begins to beat his fellow servants. Maybe not with his hands, but just with his mouth. And to eat and drink with drunkards. Which one does Jesus mean? Immorality or hatred? Both. Both. Be careful. It, wickedness is going to increase in the last days and cause our love to grow cold. And Jesus is calling us back to the kingdom manifesto. Right before he left his disciples, look at what he says in Luke's account here in Acts chapter 1. They all gather around him. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Hey, Lord, we heard that John Hagee, he's got this really cool chart that he showed his church. So what do you got? <laughs> Nope, I'm not picking on John Hagee. I love John Hagee. Does he even still preach? I guess I haven't heard John in a while. But, uh, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? And look what Jesus says. It's not for you to know the details. It's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has set by his authority. Instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to live as kingdom distributors. Power to be my witnesses, to bring witness to the gospel of the kingdom everywhere you go. Yeah, the kingdom is coming, but let me tell you something. The kingdom is here. And we've been called not to cast out darkness. We've been called to turn on the light. We are the light. You don't walk into a room and go, darkness, get out of here. You turn on the light switch. <laughs> Don't get so worked up over darkness. Just be light. That's what he's calling us to. Be light. No, don't, don't underestimate darkness. Don't be ignorant of darkness. There, there's that call in the scripture. But don't be overwhelmed by darkness. You are the light. The kingdom is within you. Everything you need, Jesus says, is within us. All the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe is what what I want to refer to today as the kingdom manifesto. You want to know how to live in the kingdom? You don't want to know how to live in the last days and not get off track? Read the Sermon on the Mount every day. Every day. Every day. 
from a different translation every day. Get a Bible with study notes because those footnotes are going to take you back to places in the Old Testament to help you understand what Rabbi Jesus is teaching. Okay, because he's referring back to, because these are people of the text. When Jews come back from Babylon, they, they get their children to memorize the Bible. By the time they're, they're 10 years old, they've memorized the law. Memorized the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized it. 10 years old. And then they go on to memorize the prophets and the writings. Memorize it. And we're people of the word because we did a version five-minute Bible reading plan. <laughs> I mean, you see how the good, yeah. there's a problem. We're people of the word. We better be in the word. And it better be more than just five minutes in the morning. It better be something that I study instead of turning on Netflix once in a while. Nothing wrong with Netflix. But the, we've, we've got to be people of the book. People of the word, the way that Jesus expected his early followers to be. But Jesus starts in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he turns, not just blessed are those, but blessed are you, the people right in front of him. When people insult you, persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot of rejoicing and being glad going on these days in the church. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It, the, it's not the end of the world, just the end of the world you know it. They persecuted the prophets. They're about to persecute me, Jesus says to them later. They're going to persecute you. It's just going to keep repeating itself. It's okay. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's start living like he's overcome the world. Let's live from that place of he's coming back. He's setting up a kingdom here. He goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. I wish we had time. We'll get back to the Sermon on the Mount other days. But he says this one. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What we've got to understand about Rabbi Jesus here, okay, he's a rabbi, he's using rabbi-type teachings with his people. Jesus comes and he's, he's saying, um, you have heard it said, but I say this. What that means is Jesus is taking what's known in the Hebrew teaching world as authority to teach. If you are a rabbi, you only have the right to teach what you have been taught. Okay? You don't have the right to teach something else. So in order to have the type of authority needed to expound on your teaching, you have to be granted authority by two people who have authority. So when in the church, when it talks about elders and the elders laying hands on other elders and ordaining them for ministry, that's a Jewish concept. Okay? So for this rabbi to teach that way, Jesus is, is doing it. He's, he's showing that he has authority. So when the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount say, Jesus is teaching like one with authority, not like our other teachers. That's what they're referring to. Who gave him authority to do this? Did, none of our other rabbis teach this way. I mean, he is, he's, wow, where did he get this authority? And if you remember, the Sadducees come to Jesus and say, where do you get your authority that's what they're talking about. And what does Jesus say? Okay, I'll tell you where my authority comes from if you answer me a question. John's baptism. Is it from God or from men? And remember, they're like, oh, we can't really answer. He's, yeah. And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you where I get my authority. Oh, light come on moment. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then Jesus himself says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Again, a Jewish teaching. So what rabbis are doing, they're teaching their students how to obey the law. 
And if you, if you teach the law in a way that causes people to forsake the law, you abolish it. But if you teach them to obey the law, you fulfill it. And we take Jesus' words, to I've come to fulfill the law, as Jesus has come to perfectly live out the law and then die for our sins. He did that, yes, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to fully explain to you what the law means so that you can live it out. Now, we've taken this passage of Scripture right here that you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but Jesus says, don't resist another, another person. We have taken this, aha, so terribly out of context in our culture because now we're like, you just got to let people take advantage of you. You got to let people hurt you. and You, gotta, you just got to do it quietly. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually calling for you to expose injustice without a retributive method. Okay, retributive means eye for eye. Jesus is saying, no, no, we still have to expose. It's not okay for someone to take your eye. You've got to expose the injustice of that moment. So what does he do? He says, hey, if someone slaps you on the right cheek. So in order to be slapped on the right cheek, do this later, but have someone slap you on the right cheek. And then notice what hand they use. In order to slap you on your right cheek, I either have to use my left hand or I have to backhand you with my right hand. That's, and the only, that's an insult. That's, you do not slap a brother that way, okay? You slap a slave that way. You slap someone who's your property that way. You demean someone by doing that. And Jesus is saying, if they slap you on the right cheek, that's a disservice. So, turn the other cheek. Make them slap you like a brother. Expose the injustice of what's being done, but do not do it in a retributive way, meaning I'm going to get even with you. You took from me now. See, Jesus isn't saying roll over and play dead at all. That's not what he's saying. He says if someone sues you for your outer garment, give them your inner garment as well. If, if someone sues you for your outer garment, it means you have nothing left. That's an injustice. The, the, the law actually says never sue someone and take everything they have. And Jesus is, is, says strip down, stand there naked to show the injustice of what they've done. Expose it. Even with the Roman soldier, the Roman soldier could make you go one mile, but if you, it's against the law for them to have you go two. And if you purposely go two, they're a little nervous. Because even making you go one is an injustice. And Jesus is not calling us to, and so Jesus is taking these teachings and he's saying the law was given, okay, not so that you would, would take someone else's life because you know what we do? We use this as a defense for capital punishment. The, Bible, the law says if you kill someone, you should be killed. Is that really what it's saying? I don't know if you've ever watched someone die. Death is an injustice. I mean, I don't even care if it's grandma and you're all, she's in the presence of Jesus and you're all standing around and it's a beautiful moment. The moment life leaves her, something within us says death is an injustice. And what I think Jesus is telling us is when we, it, the law was never given so that if someone takes a life that you absolutely have to always kill them. I think the law was given because Think of the rebellious child. We always use this analogy. If there's a rebellious child, you have to stone them to put them out. I don't care how bad your child is, parents. I want you to imagine being the one to throw that first stone. How many children would have to be stoned in the community before we realized the value of life? So we were like, we have got to change something. Because we don't want another child to be stoned. I don't think God gave them the law just so that they would purge the evil from among them. I think he gave them the law to show them life is so valuable. Change how you live so you never have to stone someone. Think of parents who watch that child be stoned with their little infant saying, what do we got to do? How do we have to raise them to make sure that we don't ever have to stone them? That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, don't take my word for it. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground, and yet God lets Cain live. Huh? 
Why does Cain get to live, but under the law we have to stone people, and now Jesus comes saying, you know, know, there's a new law. I think it's been the same law all along. And if you draw a line through the entire story, you recognize God's never been about trying to kill people. God has always been about redemption. And he's trying to get his people to realize the value of life. But we want to continue this this retribution style of justice because, hey, if we just get people to fear, then they'll obey. Fear never gets people to obey. What does? Love. Love. Paul says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. Not the fear of God that God is going to punish you and throw you into hell, but the fear of God that shows you he is a God of great understanding. Great wrath, yes, but even more great love. And I think that's what goes through the entire narrative of the Scripture. I want to close with Jesus' words from Luke. He says it in Matthew 2. Uh, It it follows this passage that we just looked at in Matthew, but I love the way Luke words it for us. But to you who are listening, remember Jesus said, take heed to how you listen. The word of God is going out today. It's been the same word that he's always said from the time of Jesus. But to you who are listening, to you who are cultivating a heart that's ready to receive, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Let's read that one again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back and your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. How do we know? Because He was kind to us, the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I want you to study end times. I put video links and other things. Yes, we should absolutely study it. We should understand it. I think Paul is saying, as you know these things, don't get lost in the details. Remember the call to live. How do we live knowing that all of these things are going to take place? Well, I think we live the way that Jesus taught us to live, in the gospel of the kingdom. And it's going to fly in the face of everything that we feel as human beings. And here's the thing. You can, you can open up the Bible and you can find passages of Scripture to actually give you the right to take everything I've said today and throw it out. You can. But if you take the story from beginning to end and you step back from it, I think you, we might be hard-pressed to do that. And so the challenge to us today, and I think every day is, to make sure that we're giving our allegiance to the gospel of the kingdom, to Jesus, first and foremost, and making sure that as wickedness increases, our love for him and our love for others doesn't grow cold. And so, Father, thank you. (laughs) Thank you that you are kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Thank you for never, never treating us as our sins have deserved. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your words right now. Help us to cultivate the type of heart that hears what your spirit is saying, that hears what Jesus has always been saying, 
Help us to live this out in our daily lives. Father, as wickedness increases in our world, help us. Help our love for you to be strong. Help our love for others to be strong. Help us to know how to preach this gospel of the kingdom. Help us to know how to live in this gospel of the kingdom. Help us to know how to distribute this gospel of the kingdom. Holy Spirit, we need your help. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this with our own minds. We need the mind of Christ. And so Holy Spirit, help us. Help us. Father, forgive us for anything we have done or said in your name that has brought shame upon you. God, we don't want to take your name in vain, but we want to live before a world that is watching the true nature and character of who you are. So Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to navigate a time that we, none of us have ever lived in. Help us to navigate this moment that none of us really fully understands. Help us. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray one last blessing over this body today. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would keep them. I pray that you would cause your face to shine on them. God, that you lift up your countenance upon them. Holy Spirit, that you would give them peace. Peace. And above all, that you would be gracious to us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, Madeline and Chris.